0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca-Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Mac Holt for a conversation about Henry III of Navarre's accession to the French throne. So he was King Henry III of Navarre, and as well as a result of becoming King of France, King Henry IV of France. Dr. Holt is Professor Emeritus at George Mason University, based in the U.S. His areas of research include early modern France, the Reformation, and 16th century Europe. He has written many publications over his career, including the book The French Wars of Religion, 1562-1629, to which is published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Mac. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, okay so we're chatting about... Uh, king Henry III of Navarre's accession to the French throne. He eventually becomes um, King Henry the the, the fourth. Um, in this conversation, we're going to sp- focus predominantly on that accession period, so the early period of his life, working his way to become a king of uh, France. But to create. Um, Sufficient context for everyone listening. Can you can you summarize? And it's okay if you get into his his reign, but more of a summary to create context. Who um, Henry of Navarre, or you could say, you know, King King Henry of the Fourth of France. Can you summarize who he was?
1: Yes, Henry of Navarre was uh, an important nobleman during the French Wars of Religion. He was important for several reasons mainly because uh he would eventually become heir to the french throne through the accident of births and deaths that is he his family the bourbon family was related to the valois dynasty in france the bourbons were descended from a uh, younger son of King Louis IX of France way back in the 13th century. That that king is who became Saint Louis, Saint Louis. Uh, so when the Valois dynasty died out in 1589, and indeed from 1584, when the last Valois heir died, Henry of Navarre was next in line to the French throne when the then king, Henry III of France, uh, would eventually Die. in fact he was assassinated in 1589 so it was really historical accident that brought him to the throne but before that point he was one of the princes of the blood that is related to the royal family meaning he was an important noble at the french court what made him particularly significant besides his status as a future heir to the throne was that he was raised as a Protestant by his mother, Jeanne d'Albret, who was queen of Navarre, married to Henry's father, Anthony of Navarre, who was king of Navarre. And Navarre was a tiny state that straddled the Pyrenees. Uh, part of it was in what is now France, part in what is now Spain. Uh, and uh, the ruling family, the Bourbon family, had um, controlled that tiny principality or kingdom since it had a king um, for a number of decades already. So Henry of Navarre was heir to the throne of the Kingdom of Navarre and he would eventually become heir to the throne of France as well. Navarre was not officially part of the Kingdom of France. It was an independent principality. But the court and ruling family being French culturally as well as linguistically, um, it would become incorporated into the Kingdom of France under Henry of Navarre's rule as King Henry IV of France. So he was an important figure, a leader of the Protestant or in France they were called the Huguenots, the Huguenot military during the French Wars of Religion that at various points were fighting against the royal forces of the King of France who were in fact Catholic. So an important figure uh, and he became even more important in 1572 when his mother, Jean d'Albret, who Was a Protestant raised Henry as a Protestant. Decided to m- arrange a marriage for Henry with the daughter of the then King of France, or the sister of the then King of France, Charles the Ninth. Uh, arranged this with um, Charles's mother, Catherine de Medici, who, as Queen Mother, was the mother of three successive French kings, uh, and. and the two mothers, Jeanne d'Albret, Henry's mother, and Catherine de Medici, Margaret of Valois' mother, arranged a wedding, a match between their two children. Well, Margaret of Valois had been raised a Catholic. Henry of Navarre raised a Protestant. So this was, in effect, an attempt to bridge the religious divide that had already produced several individual civil wars over the issue of religion the problem was Henry and Margaret uh, were not given any input or very serious input and as it turned out neither was interested in changing their religion and uh, Henry and Margaret uh, never had a very close or happy relationship they were married in August of 1572 the event that preceded the famous St. Bartholomew's Massacre in Paris uh, on August 24th uh, 1572 Um, and it was a very rocky marriage and it would eventually uh, be dissolved Uh, so Henry of Navarre was a critical figure Protestant, military leader um, related to the royal family Married to the king's sister after 1572, but fighting on the other side from uh, his wife's brother, King Charles the Ninth, in the French Wars of Religion. So that's sort of Henry, in a nutshell. Yes, King of Navarre, soon to become King of France, upon the assassination of Henry the Third in
0: 1589. Yeah, it creates. Um sufficient background and context for everyone listening thank you uh mac so when he when he married margaret de valois was he considered king of navarre at that point in time can you share more about that
1: yes he acceded to the Navarrese throne upon the death of his father anthony of navarre who died earlier in in uh, the earlier civil wars So, in effect, he was king of Navarre at the time of his marriage to Margaret of Valois. Uh, And he was always referred to, even by his enemies, um, those Catholics who opposed his coming to the throne, as the king of Navarre. Um, And so they recognized his noble position. They just hated his religious affiliation.
0: So can you speak more about the that religious dynamic then? Because in contemporary terms, in um, when, when in in many uh, uh, societies, different religions aren't they're not uh, like in in a you know in America and Canada they're not ba- they're not battling with with each other you know, or in the UK etc. So. Um, well, can you can you speak more about what that religious environment was? why Why was there uh, conflict and tension between the Catholics and uh, the Protestants? And could you also bring into the answer if possible, Mac, uh, distinguishing the some of these common terms that you hear, so Protestants, calvinists and and uh, Huguenots?
1: Sure. Um, the religious situation throughout early modern Europe in the sixteenth century, uh... was always a product of the reformation the protestant reformation that technically began with martin luther in saxony in the holy roman empire the german empire but other versions of protestantism emerged in the first half of the sixteenth century um... calvinism being one uh... and french protestants were overwhelmingly calvinist in their uh, Protestantism. The term Protestant uh, is a term that wasn't much used at the time. They referred to themselves uh, as Lutherans or uh, members of the Reformed Church. They didn't call themselves Calvinists. In fact, the Reformed Church predated Calvin. Calvin, uh, in effect, took it over and consolidated uh, the Reformed movement. So they didn't use the term Protestant, that was a term that became attached to the period and to what we call the Reformation much later. But um, Catholics referred to all Protestants as heretics and uh, virtually all Protestants tended to refer to Catholics as Papists when they were trying to be um, critical of them. So the term "papist" and "heretic" were really pejorative terms, um, but most Protestants referred to themselves by their own denomination: Lutheran, Reformed. Um, uh, very, they were the two main. Or later, um, when Protestantism took over the Church of England, um, English Protestants, or even later in England, Anglicans. Uh, but those terms. Uh, all grew out of the Reformation. Now, this religious tension between Catholics and Protestants is in some ways uh, an oversimplification uh, because there were tensions within the Catholic Church even prior to Luther. In fact, the Middle Ages uh, witnessed a period of tension within the Church as the Roman Catholic Church attempted to stamp out what they considered unorthodox beliefs and practices, various heresies, the Albigensians in southern France, uh, all all these efforts at um, the Inquisition to root out various heretics and heresies. There wasn't a common accepted uh, notion of what Catholicism meant by all Catholics generally the clergy were more or less on board with the theology of the church and the doctrines and practices but there were even some uh, significant clergymen who were urging various reforms even prior to uh, Luther but all of these efforts at reform were designed to reform the church from within not to break away and what happened in the 16th century was that Uh, first Luther and later Calvin, Zwingli, uh, Martin Bucer, other Protestants broke away from the Catholic Church uh, and started new congregations, practicing and believing under a very different set of doctrines and guidelines. Now, what stands out to us from the 21st century, where we don't have Protestants and Catholics, for the most part, Uh, fighting against each other. Northern Ireland, of course, is an exception. But for the most part, there aren't these uh, violent um, conflagrations between religious groups among Christians in the Western world like there was in the 16th century. And that's because um, until the very late 18th century, right before the French and American revolutions, there's a general belief by most uh, Europeans that religious uniformity uh, was clearly better than having lots of different religions uh, competing for one another uh, within a particular uh, nation state. And in the 16th century, um, the idea of what we would call toleration or religious pluralism was considered actually a vice and a sin if you're if you believe your religion was the true religion why would you tolerate falsehood and heresy that was a sign of weakness of your religion if you would tolerate some false religion so the default position for both protestants and catholics was that they were practicing the true religion and they had hopes of creating a society where their one true religion was the dominant and only religion uh, to be practiced. And this is what led to violence um, beginning in Germany, uh, the German Empire later spread to France, uh, spread to much of Western Europe over the course uh, of the 16th century. And uh, the Reformation evolved into a series of religious wars of which the French wars of religion were the most serious because they lasted the longest and were the most violent, um, even resulting in lots of civilian deaths, not just military troops on the battlefield. So it took a long time. There were a few voices in the 16th century pleading for what we would now accept as toleration or at least religious coexistence, but they were drowned out uh, as being fools and weak in, in their own faith. Um, so this is why uh, religious tensions tended to evolve into violence. It wasn't inevitable. That is the state uh, at every level could intervene to stop it. And they tried, um, but they were not always successful.
0: Um, so when referencing and practicing Protestants in this in France in this uh, period of time. It's perfectly accurate to call them Huguenots
1: Correct. We don't know where the term originated um, but we do find some French Protestants using the term. We find uh, some Catholics using the term when they weren't being derogatory and referring to them as heretics, there was another term Catholics tended to use, um, uh, which was less derogatory than calling them heretics, but not as friendly as calling them Huguenots. And that was uh, the phrase, those of the so-called reformed religion, la um, religion prétendu in French, the so-called reformed religion because Catholics never accepted that they were really reformed. They still believed they were were heretics. Um, But it is um, accurate, the term Huguenot, to refer to French Protestants, but only within uh, Protestants in France. Uh, The the Dutch Calvinists weren't referred to as Huguenots. Uh, The Calvinists in Germany weren't referred to as Huguenots, just the French Calvinists.
0: And, so, and then, so at that point in time, then the term Protestant, that would have been anachronistic. That was a term that came later on.
1: It existed, but it wasn't used very often. Um, it came into use in English at the end of the 16th century, um, when uh, you see references to Queen Elizabeth's Protestant foreign policy making alliances with other Protestant states Um, but in terms of how it was used by most contemporaries it didn't become as common as it is to us today uh, until much later in the 18th century Uh, and the term the Protestant Reformation uh, as a major event in history obviously they didn't use that when they were living through this process because it wasn't until much later that this idea that history transformed as a result of the Reformation um, this is an idea that um, was popularized by historians in the 19th century that first the Italian Renaissance was a break with the Middle Ages the Reformation was a further step toward progress step toward modernity, uh, leaving behind the superstitious backward world of medieval Europe. Uh, But that is really uh, a narrative constructed by 19th century liberal historians in Western Europe. Uh, Contemporaries at the time didn't think of the period they were living through that way at all.
0: Okay, but uh, in modern terms, when scholars, it's perfectly fine to reference uh, Henry's, uh, faith as Protestant as well when, when using common language. Right. Right. Correct. Okay. Okay. So what I'm trying to reconcile in my mind, then you mentioned his, uh, first marriage to Margaret de Valois. Um, it sounds like Henry's outwardly Protestant. I presume you probably mentioned, mentioned it. I presume, uh, de Valois was, uh, Catholic. Um, right and there's tension and conflicts as you've outlined very nicely can you can you try to re- help me reconcile that in my my mind how uh if there was this 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 um, uh and, and uh conflict and and uh, 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 issues going on between Protestants and and Catholics how this uh marriage came to be
1: well the the Marriage came about, as I said earlier, largely because of the two mothers. Jean d'Albret was um, a very talented and unusual noblewoman as a queen herself, um, and Catherine de' Medici, the widow of a uh, king of France, Henry II, who was killed in 1559, and the mother of The next three kings of France, her three oldest sons, Francis II, Charles IX, and Henry III, she was also very important. Both of them, while very um, devoted to their own religious faiths and traditions, Catherine, of course, raised in Florence as uh, a Catholic, I mean, Catherine de' Medici, raised in Florence in Italy, came to France to marry Henry II. Uh, Jean d'Albret, uh, who was baptized a Catholic, converted to Protestantism earlier in the 16th century, devouted, de- devout in-, in her faith, but both those queens wanted to avoid violence and confrontation because of the religious divide. They were seeking a way to try to find a way to unite the two groups together. Now, for most Catholics, including Catherine de' Medici, she hoped to be able to find a way to lure the Protestants back into the Catholic Church, if possible, through um, enacting some reforms within the French Gallican Church, the French Catholic Church. And she had tried that earlier on, uh, at the very beginning of the, the Civil Wars in the early 1560s she had called together Protestant and Catholic leaders um, the uh, Calvin's uh, um, successor in Geneva and his lieutenant while he was still alive Theodore Beza uh, and the Cardinal of Lorraine uh, leading Catholic figure in France along with several others uh, to the court Um, back at the very beginning of the war's religion to see if there was a way they could compromise and agree to come back together and they couldn't Um, because the Protestants refused to recognize the authority of the Pope and refused to recognize papal authority Um, Protestants refused to accept um, certain Catholic doctrines Um, the the principal ones being on how one could get into heaven. The Catholics believe you have to go through the sacraments of the church. Protestants believe you didn't need the sacraments. God, through his own grace, could grant you entry into heaven uh, on his own will. They disagreed over the practice of the Eucharist or communion. Um and there were other uh, doctrinal differences Uh, but in terms of of practice because so much of religion existed not inside the church but outside for Catholics religious processions for Protestants singing the Psalms uh, in French in public um, this tended to disrupt social harmony within the community if it was something that stayed inside the church inside households wasn't public um... it might have been less confrontational uh... but each there there were uh... militants on each side who tried to disrupt the public practices of the other religion and this is what generally led to violence so when protestant preachers started preaching in the town square uh, this attracted hecklers and eventually violence. Um, we see the same kind of um, protest and counter-protest in all sorts of things today, from Black Lives Matter to uh, other other kinds of of
0: protests. So there was uh, intermittent reconciliatory efforts between both par- both sides, just like there was intermittent um, con- conflict events as well uh,
1: that's uh, that's correct and a very good way of putting it because after each civil war there was a peace edict an edict of pacification that granted the Huguenots the French Protestant certain rights to of conscience freedom of conscience and certain places certain towns where they could practice their religion but not in any major city and certainly not in the capital Paris so there were intermittent efforts to create peace but they never lasted because the Protestants tended to want more than just the bare meager crumbs thrown their way and the Catholics tended to not want to give anything to them because they were still hoping for a dominant uh, Catholic Church that united all of France together. And that was their view of what France was like before the Reformation. And in theory, that was true. But as I've suggested in practice, um, there was a lot more tension and even violence within the church prior to the Reformation than most Catholics tended to uh, give credit to.
0: Okay, so in this um, chronology then, I think earlier you covered the the separation, the divorce, uh, between Margaret and Henry. That's where we were at, right? We'd... Yeah, well,
1: that, that would come later.
0: Uh, that would, okay. Um,
1: that would come later after he was king. Um, they, they didn't live together for much of their marriage, um, but they were technically still married because um... as I'm sure you and probably most listeners know uh... when Henry III was assassinated, King of France, in August of 1589 making Henry of Navarre next in line to the throne according to the unwritten French constitution which spelled out bloodlines, it was all done by um... blood and family ties and relations um... his being a Protestant made him unacceptable to most Catholics because the unwritten French Constitution also required the King of France to be a Catholic and not only to be a Catholic but to um, wage war against heresy and try to destroy heresy within his kingdom. So this presented a problem and Um, the only way Henry was ever going to be accepted by French Catholics as King of France was to give up uh, relinquish his Calvinist religion and accept instruction in Catholicism and become a Catholic and he tried to see if he could get enough political support from moderates moderate Catholics who did support him as their legitimate king, but um, he recognized he wasn't going to have the support of all the French people, the overwhelming majority of Catholics, until he converted. So he sacrificed his religion to um, create unity in the French kingdom and prevent France from evolving into a civil war, uh, renewing the civil war uh again in a much more um, visceral way uh with a protestant king against the majority of his catholic subjects so once he converted to catholicism under catholic canon law um, divorce wasn't possible unless there was a special dispensation given by the pope which itself would have been unusual that in most cases if it could be proved the marriage was never consummated a dispensation might be allowed um... but uh, his divorce from uh... margaret galois uh, came a bit later and uh... he did remarry another catholic uh... in fact a um, another member of the medici family marie de medici uh... who was his wife when. He was ultimately assassinated in 1610.
0: Okay, so make sure I, under, I understand the chronology. So the marriage to Margaret de Valois—that that, that event—is what is associated in time and place to the Saint Bartholomew's Day Massacre.
1: Correct, and because it occurred just a few days before, and the bulk of the Huguenot nobility. Well, not all of them but uh, several hundred of them were in paris to attend the wedding uh, and all the major catholic nobles were in paris to attend the wedding uh, so that was the event that um, sort of created the tinderbox uh, that would be sparked off into violence on the night of august 24th and uh, to be fair, Henry himself and Margaret had nothing to do with this decision. Um, it was a series of miscalculations on both sides by the Protestant nobles and the Catholic nobles um, who uh, mistook uh, various events for uh, threats of violence. The Catholic nobles feared the Protestants were going to attempt a coup and bring a large Huguenot army to force um... Paris to surrender uh... Th- there's, that was certainly mistaken, there was no such thing being planned at all um... The, the Huguenots feared uh... they were all going to be slaughtered uh... and certainly it was no intention of King Charles IX or Catherine de Medici or the Royal Council to uh, attempt uh, a massacre of all french protestants what set off the violence was a failed assassination attempt and we don't know it, there's no smoking gun who was responsible, some think the Guise family was responsible but someone attempted to assassinate the leader uh... of the uh... Huguenot military that is besides Henry Navarre, uh, Gaspard de Coligny, the Admiral of France. Um, There was an assassination attempt. He was trying to drum up support to lead a French army to support the Protestants in the Netherlands who were rebelling against Philip of Spain. And the assassination attempt failed. It just injured Coligny. Had it succeeded, there might not have been a massacre at all, as the Protestant doubles would have fled Paris, uh, fearing the worst, uh, and probably nothing would have happened. But he, Coligny, was urging the Protestants, no, stay around. There are celebrations to come. Um, let's uh, be sociable. Let's not believe all these rumors. Uh, so the Protestant nobility stayed. The Catholic nobility were now worried there was going to be a reprisal against um, the king. And ultimately they decided to take out um, only a small number, uh, 20 or 30 Huguenot nobles in Paris, the most militant ones, um, in the middle of the night. The King attempted to prevent further violence by having um, the um, local militia. Each neighborhood uh, had its own male militia that stood night watch. And they were ordered to barricade the streets to prevent people from coming out uh, and uh, creating havoc. Um, And Coligny and these 20 or so nobles were murdered on the night, the early morning hours of 24 August. But the royal militia didn't do its job. There were several militia leaders that decided they wanted more blood. Um, Catholics came out of their homes. They mistakenly believed that the king ordered uh, all Protestants to be killed. Uh, Catholic preachers in Paris had been preaching this. Uh, in the months preceding the massacre. And um, this was not the intention of the king. Um, he did order the initial murders on these Huguenot nobles, but didn't want it to spread to the rest of the Huguenot population. And uh, the Huguenot population in Paris was pretty considerable um, of um, maybe seven, 800 people plus there were many more who would come to Paris for the wedding so the Saint Bartholomew's massacre um, occurred as a result of the wedding taking place but not caused by the wedding at all uh, it established the context uh, for the political miscalculation that happened and uh, if you know historians or going to blame anyone. It's the King, Queen, Mother, the Royal Council, all of them um, eventually signed off on this. They uh, could have done more to uh, resolve religious tensions within the capital. There had been violence breaking out before 1572 between Protestants and Catholics and they just tended to ignore it. Um, treating the common people uh, as beneath their concern. They weren't overly worried, and that clearly was a mistake.
0: So obviously Henry survived this event. So what what happens after the um, St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in terms of Henry's life?
1: So when the St. Bartholomew's Massacre occurred, Henry was imprisoned by royal troops, told his life would be spared only if he converted to Catholicism, and he was placed under house arrest. So, he lived virtual prisoner at court um, for the next few years as nominally Catholic, uh, having just married a Catholic wife. Now, Henry would eventually escape from court. He had some allies at court who engineered his escape uh, in early 1576 during the outbreak of another Civil War. This um, occurred after the death of Charles IX. Charles IX died in 1574, replaced by his younger brother, uh, Henry of Abelois, who became King Henry III of France. And so during the Civil War that broke out, which would in effect um, be the Fifth Civil War um, in 1576, Henry of Navarre escaped from court uh, took up the head of the Protestant military now that Coligny uh, had been killed and um, led an army against the Royal Army uh, of uh, King Henry III and uh, what complicated the picture Henry III's younger brother uh, Francis, Duke of Anjou, uh, had also been held prisoner at court uh, since the Saint Bartholomew's massacre because it was believed he had some Protestant sympathies. In fact, he didn't. Um, but he had escaped from court. He joined in with Henry of Navarre fighting against his brother uh, and um, a peace edict, the Edict of Pacification of May 1576 granted the Protestants even a few more rights and privileges, um, yet another intermittent period of pacification. And um, when Henry escaped from court in early 1576, he made it clear his um, conversion was false. He remained a devout Calvinist, a devout Huguenot, uh, and that would continue. Uh, for the, the rest of the religious wars until ultimately as heir to the throne uh, after the assassination of Henry III, he would eventually become crown king of France only after he converted to Catholicism, this time a real conversion in 1593. Um, and that was the only way he saw to, in the religious conflict, to gain the support of all uh, the people of France not just the Protestants who made up less than 10% of the population but the more than 90% of uh, French Catholics and uh, a part of common mythology of Henry's conversion and this was started um, oh relatively soon after the event was that Henry's conversion was cynical uh... the phrase uh... paris is worth a mass uh... which is not something he said but was part of catholic propaganda that sprang up immediately after his conversion many catholics wouldn't accept him right away uh... because they believed his conversion was false it was a conversion of circumstance political opportunism uh, and in fact, Henry did everything in his power to demonstrate his sincerity as a Catholic uh, immediately after his conversion. His first entry into Paris, uh, the, the capital city of France, um, after his conversion, uh, happened to be during Holy Week uh, of 1594. And uh, Henry uh, did what... All Catholic kings had done during Holy Week. On Monday Thursday, he, even though he was now crowned king of France, washed the feet of the poor, as all Catholic kings had done. He uh went to confession during Lent, as all Catholic kings had done. He received uh Holy Mass on Easter Sunday, as all Catholic kings had done. Uh he wanted to give every indication he was now a Catholic, although he made very clear to French Huguenots he was not going to force them to convert. He wanted them uh, to live peacefully with their Catholic neighbors. He hoped they might follow his example and convert peacefully back into Roman Catholicism. But he said that the French monarchy was never going to force you to do that you can live and have freedom of conscience as a Calvinist as a Protestant Uh, if you recognize me as your legitimate king and if you recognize um, French law uh, and are willing to abide by the restrictions set out in the edicts of pacification so um, Henry was a devout Calvinist not a dogmatist Theology and doctrine weren't his strong points, but he was a firm uh, sympathetic believer and strong member of his faith, and that remained true uh, after he converted to Catholicism. But it was a very fraught event. Most French Catholics did eventually come around. Only a few held out and uh, they tended to support the king of Spain who still had Spanish troops in France they were ultimately defeated and driven out in 1598 and this is when Henry issued uh... his most important and final peace edict the edict of Nantes in the spring of 1598 um, outlaying uh... what he hoped would be a um, permanent religious settlement that granted protestants certain rights uh... in the towns where they controlled they had freedom of conscience throughout the kingdom of France they would never be persecuted for believing in Protestantism but they couldn't practice it uh... except in uh... the limited towns they controlled at the time in southern France so uh... this peace settlement did last uh... much longer than the earlier ones and it wouldn't be overturned until um, nearly a century later when Louis XIV revoked the Edict of Nantes in 1685, uh, forcing all Protestants either to convert to Catholicism or leave France. And uh, so it was a peace settlement that lasted much longer and did provide peace between the, the two religions for much longer than the earlier settlements.
0: You mentioned earlier Charles the IX... Died, um, and uh, my understanding is he was alive uh, at, at the point in time. Uh, certainly, when Henry m- married Margaret de Valois, yeah. um, He's not uh, the pr- the direct predecessor to Henry. It's Henry the Henry the Third of of France. So, can you that that's correct, right? It's Henry the Third of France. Okay, can you clarify the dynastic uh, tree or, or lines at play that would have the um, the, the the French monarchy and the rules uh, identify Henry the Third of Navarre as the um, the 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 heir to the French throne, and you covered nicely, you know, if he um, converts to Catholicism. But uh, independent of that, what, what was the dynastic line uh, at play or the rules that had him identified as heir to the throne?
1: Well, the the French crown um, always passed to the eldest male heir. Uh, And for preventing any controversy uh, or anyone claiming the throne unconstitutionally, it was always hoped that King kings would have several sons and the eldest son would inherit and if he died the second son and if the king had no sons the crown would revert if the king had a younger brother he or his sons uh, would inherit so it was always through the male line Uh, what the French did not allow which some other states like Castile in Spain or even England allowed for the crown to pass to females. So in France, only males could inherit the crown and all the authority, the royal authority that went with that. And um, the Bourbon family, uh, which was what Henry Navarre that was his family, Anthony of Bourbon uh, king of Navarre and Henry of Bourbon king of Navarre. Um, the Bourbons were related to the Valois dynasty going all the way back to the 13th century uh, when the monarchy uh, was under the control of the Angebin dynasty and the direct descendants uh, of that dynasty, the eldest son um, or uh younger sons of King Louis the Ninth of France. Um, the Valois would take over from the Angevin dynasty in the 14th century when they would be related through a younger son of the Angevin dynasty, and the Bourbons were yet another younger branch or as they say in French, a cadet branch uh, of the royal family. So, Henry of Navarre could trace his lineage through the male line all the way back to St. Louis, King Louis the Ninth of France, just like Charles the Ninth and Henry the Third could, but it would be through a different branch of the family. This was a controversial. Um, all... Uh, French Constitutionalists uh, accepted this. What was different was that up until the assassination of Henry III in 1589, all French kings had been Catholic, and this had not been an issue because the Constitution required the Catholicity of the monarchy, uh, as well as being of legitimate bloodline and so when Henry III was assassinated there are two parts of the Constitution that are now in conflict do we have a king who is next in line by blood is that a legitimate king or do we have someone else who is a Catholic not directly in line by blood and when the Constitution is in tension against itself um... you can get legitimate constitutional arguments either way Henry resolved that by converting to Catholicism abjuring his Calvinist faith taking instruction by several Catholic bishops in the summer of 1593 and announcing his conversion uh... and taking mass as a Catholic uh... in 1593 and that is what allowed the civil wars to come to an end and allowed all French Catholics now to accept one king, uh, one faith, one law that is sort of the, the motto of French constitutionalism, one king, one faith, one law that was now uh, reestablished uh, under the monarchy of King Henry the fourth of France. So a very significant figure. He came from the tiny kingdom Navarre down on the Pyrenees. Navarre would be incorporated into the kingdom of France during his reign. Um, and um, became, uh, if anything, um, a kind of mythological legend in French history ever since because there was this myth that Henry personally was the one who ended the Civil Wars, created peace. Uh, He was Good King Henry, um, and this is another part of the 19th century liberal historians. Um, Good King Henry reestablished a strong monarchy after the weak kings, the sons of Catherine de' Medici, um, and enabled not just peace, but a stronger monarchy, the absolute monarchy of Louis the 13th and 14th um, and uh, he brought prosperity to all Frenchmen and this 19th century uh... these 19th century historians um, came up with the idea Henry um, was the friend of all french peasants catholic peasants uh... and their view of Henry was he put a chicken in every peasants uh, uh They they became uh, more prosperous as a result of the reign of good king Henry the Fourth. So, modern day historians have had a lot of revision to do. Henry is still seen as very important, obviously uh, a critical figure in all of this. But he didn't wave a magic wand and create peace and prosperity. Uh, that is part of the the liberal myth of the 19th century. But that remained part of the textbooks in print schools right up until over oh, the last 30-40 years. Uh, just like American textbooks until 30-40 or 40 years ago um, created this idyllic myth of the founding fathers and left slavery out uh, and uh, you as Canadian would appreciate um, the War of 1812 had nothing to do with the US invading Canada but it had everything to do with the evil Brits who were, were trying to renege on our uh, American revolution so Henry the fourth um, is still today considered very important uh, historians have revised his reputation a bit uh, but um he's, he has been ever since while he was alive and still today is a, a very important historical figure
0: my uh closing question was going to be why does he have some of these epithets good king henry and henry the great so you made my my job easier at the end of this uh conversation mac Uh, i do want to ask then uh navarre itself so the state of navarre uh you mentioned it was incorporated into france eventually but today it's also the actual navarre and there's a there's a region it's a an autonomous community in spain so can you explain uh how that uh how that occurred from a demarcation pers- perspective
1: sure um i sh- i should have said the part of the kingdom of navarre north of the pyrenees mm-hmm. was incorporated into france and uh, um the king of castile or what we now call the king of spain because he was king of Castile, king of aragon king uh of for a, a while even portugal um under Philip II of Spain, incorporated the Spanish part in the bar. Now, being located in the Basque region, the common people uh, were Basque speaking. They didn't speak French or Castilian in the 16th century. French and Castilian were the language of uh, the courts, the, the nobility, and the educated elites. Uh, and that region. Uh, and it wasn't just the the western, part of the western Pyrenees where Navarre was, but the eastern uh, Pyrenees down into Catalonia, uh, where Basque was still uh, spoken, and Catalan was the, the native language in Catalonia. Uh, both of those Pyrenees um, communities part of Catalonia and what would become part of Castile that was Bas speaking. Uh, they always wanted their independence and Catalonia adopted them uh, because Catalonia never wanted to be incorporated in Spain. Uh, they were forced into uh, becoming part of Spain in 1640 King Philip IV of Spain, um, Felipe IV, uh... and um there, there was even an attempt to take back part of France at southern southern France uh... French Navarre at that time um... so you're, you're right there is a region that still considers themselves autonomous but that has spread to much of Catalonia including the capital of Barcelona even you know it's still part of Spain uh but there, there is an independence movement uh afoot there that is much like the uh, independence movement afoot in Scotland uh, in the United Kingdom today, and what has appeared from time to time uh in Canada in Quebec uh so um, these issues are still with us uh and there' are still calls for. Uh, Navarrese or um, Basque nationalist today uh, in Spain. So you're absolutely right about that.
0: You're a, uh, you're retired with honors. You've, you've written uh, books, uh, many, many publications. Um, you're enjoyable to talk with. I, I always love chatting with you. Um, Thank you. What, are you. what are you working on these days?
1: Well, right now I'm working on a book on how French people, both Protestant and Catholic, read their Bibles in 16th century France because French Protestants wanted Bibles in French. French Catholics were still reading Bibles in Latin, and over the course of the 16th century, many French Catholics also wanted to read the Bible in their own language and there were Catholic Bibles published for them and many French Catholics even bought and read Protestant translations made by Protestant printers and what I'm undertaking is looking at surviving copies at uh, various forms of marginalia notes underlining made by people in the 16th century i found many Bibles where the owners have written their name I can see their handwriting I'm trying to see what parts of the Bible they read and um, I've looked at roughly 500 so far uh, that have survived Mm -hmm. and uh, my conclusions are that Protestants and Catholics tended to read the Bible in much the same way intended to focus on the same parts of the Bible that they read. So it's a kind of popular history of reading um, and what what was the significance of vernacular Bibles as part of the Reformation. So that's what I'm doing now and I've published a few articles on this and eventually it will become another book.
0: I hope you can get to uh, Europe in the reasonable future Uh, To continue with your uh, research because I'm sure you'll have more more fun doing your research over there
1: Yeah, I haven't been able to do that since the fall of 2019 and I'm anxious to get back. You're exactly right
0: (laughs) All right, Mac. It's always great to chat with you. Thanks for coming on the show Uh, My pleasure.
1: Thanks for, for asking me
0: so again everybody the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that dr. Holt wrote The French Wars of Religion, 1562-1629. to I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Mac and everybody listening as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.